Welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental journalism brought to you by the brilliant team of investigative journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Adjipong Parsons. Uh, in this week's episode, we're going to be covering the labour splits over tree huggers, boo, uh, nutrient neutrality woes, and an incredible exclusive involving the former steelworks at Teesside, including operational failures and the unsolved deaths of two men. For our deep dive, we'll be talking about water pollution and the brains behind the investigative outfit Extraordinaire Watershed. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber! I'm so glad I don't have to do that, yeah. honestly. Next week, I don't think next next week, week I everyone's going to be leading us in the UK <laughs> chamber. Now we're a rotating host. <laughs> <laughs> so joining me today, I've got Pippa Neal and I've got Tess Golly uh, talking to me about what's been going on with the big green news this week. Uh, and just when I thought Labour had sealed over the cracks of division, another opening seems to be appearing. And this time it involves tree huggers and something about Keir Starmer not liking them, Pippa. Uh, can you bring me up to speed? Yeah, so the, this is all based on a story that was in the Sunday Times over the weekend. Um, and it kind of starts from the fact that Shadow Climate Secretary Ed Miliband was reportedly giving a presentation to the Shadow Cabinet on his energy policies. And he was excited, you know, going through the slides. I think he's a very excitable guy. Yeah, I like him. exactly. Mm. But apparently, according to the Sunday Times, the reception from Keir Starmer was lukewarm and he reportedly thanked him for his presentation, but said he wasn't interested in, and I'm quoting here, hope and change and was instead more interested in creating sustainable new jobs to replace jobs in old sectors that were being lost. Um, He then apparently went on to say that he was not interested in tree huggers, adding that, in fact, he hates tree huggers. Damn tree huggers. That's what's wrong with our environment, Mm. I think. (laughs) And hope and change. (laughs) (laughs) Too much of that. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm the leader, Ed. Remember that. That's clear, isn't it? Um, And what do we think other Labour politicians kind of feel about this sentiment? Yeah, it's interesting. So... The Labour Party haven't put out a response. I contacted them and said, you know, do you have anything to say? And they, you know, didn't confirm or deny. They just refused to respond. So that does leave us with questions like, all we have to go off is this one Sunday Times article. But according to that article, Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, and Pat McFadden, the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, are among the, quote, sceptics who think the focus on a green agenda is complicating Labour's key messages. Um, And it was actually Rachel Reeves last month who announced that the party was backtracking on its pledge to invest 28 billion in green industries each year for a decade, um, when she instead told the BBC that Labour was instead pledging to reach 28 billion in the second half of the first parliament. And according to the Sunday Times, Morgan McSweeney, who's Labour's election chief, is also frustrated by those in the party that are pushing these green policies. Um, the newspaper reported that he thinks, for example, that the party's pledge to end all North Sea oil and gas licences has been a, in quotes, unhelpful distraction and something that the Tories can easily weaponise. And somehow, ULES has entered the scene as another kind of environmental policy weapon. How does how, how does that tie in with this? Yeah. So, you know, perhaps this is, you know, further example of, of the culture wars, because this has become a very heated 
heated debate, the ultra-low emission zone, with the, the plans basically um, under Sadiq Khan, a Labour mayor, is to, by August, expand the ultra-low emission zone to be London-wide. And this has actually resulted in um, five London councils taking the mayor to court last week, which kind of we're awaiting the conclusions on that. Last week, further divisions emerged in the party when Keir Starmer backed Danny Beals, who's the party's candidate in the Uxbridge by-election, and he has said that Sadiq Khan's ultra-low emission zone expansion should be delayed. Um, when asked in an interview if Starmer agreed with Beals, he said his par- the party's candidate was right to stick up for his would-be constituents. Right, so he's concerned that the residents of Uxbridge are going to be unfairly impinged by this sort of £12.50 daily toll for driving in and out of London, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, Labour versus Labour, Sadiq versus <laughs> Keir. All right, interesting. And it's not just uh, the opposition leader that's having to deal with environmental policy right now. Um, we've got our own prime minister uh, is under scrutiny. And this involves nutrient neutrality, the Dutch, and as I understand it, the levelling up bill. Damn Dutch, those tests. Oh, the the usual one. suspects. Yes. Usual suspects here. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I, I think I've got this right. But Tess, can you sort of just break that down for me? How do those three things connect to Rishi and why is and what's he up to? <laughs> so the government has been mooting via anonymous briefings to papers, basically, plans to override these rules, nutrient neutrality rules, which are aimed at uh, minimising nutrient pollution in protected waterways. Um, this is because they want to speed up housing, build, house building massively. And it's the, the push to build houses is becoming quite a big uh, political uh, kind of point that, that Labour and, and the Conservatives are fighting over. Um, and be, be, because Keir, there's that big pledge he's going to help allow house builders on Greenbelt? Or no, councils? Well, well it's going to be all about builders uh, it was be on the side of developers, not not on the other side. And he said in a in a speech, it was about education. But there's a line in it. It was uh, last week about you know talking about his plans to bulldoze through planning regulations. Uh, so that's the kind of that's the vibe that they're right. they're putting out. And if a tree hugger's in the way, B- bulldoze. Keep going. Get, get the bulldozers in. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the thing about nutrient neutrality, uh, it's it's often referred to as the Dutch case because it started in the Netherlands, uh, where the Court of Justice of the EU gave a judgment, um, which basically said that if you are adding nutrient loads into places that will, will negatively impact protected sites, then you're, you're out of line of the law. You can't do it. As a result, Natural England said, oh gosh, okay, and turned around and said to local authorities, if you, you know, you should, you mustn't be approving uh, house building, which is going to add uh, via the, 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 the sewage setup, which is going to add to the nutrient loads. Um, and since then, there's been this big logjam basically in development. Um, so that's where we're at. And it's often now used as an example by various politicians of various colors of saying, look at this. The, look at the green crap. It's absolutely getting in the way of the important stuff, which is obviously uh, house building and house building is important. Most you know, most people agree with that. Um, but now there's now this fight over whether or not to scrap nutrient neutrality, and that is what has been mooted in the papers. And how then does that connect with the Leveling Up Bill? So the process through which Bloomberg, at least, has reported, or well, a few papers has reported that. Um, number 10 are looking at is through the the leveling up and regeneration bill uh changing it through there uh i've spoken to, to 
environmental lawyers and consultants, though, and they are a little bit circumspect about if that's how doable that would really be, because um, of various uh, you know legal reasons. But also that they they're quite keen to emphasise that this isn't like uh, changing nutrient neutrality advice. It, it it doesn't just exist on its own. It's not part of the planning regulations. It's part of a huge part of environmental law. Right. Uh, it doesn't exist in isolation. So the idea you can just like cut that bit out and not impact everything else isn't really how it works. No. So it's possible that uh, they're going to kind of have a bit more, if if the government does want to do this, they might, might have a bit more trouble than they initially think. But uh, it was put to me uh, by uh, Gabriel uh, Connor Strike, who, who works for Greenshank, which is a company that works with developers to find solutions to um, the, the nutrient neutrality issue. That it's been put out there as a sort of policy weather balloon to gauge initial response. So they're trying to see just how much backlash right. they get, possibly. Um, yeah, because yeah, I mean, like you're right. Because I, I I read your story and I was so confused. Because think okay, so you're talking oh about Natura two. No, not by your writing. <laughs> I was confused by the government's intention. Because if it you know if it's the case, you're talking about Natura two thousand sites, obviously where the Dutch case is derived from, which are equivalent as then special areas of conservation, which is you know some of the most heavily protected sites in our country. Nitrates are impacting them. So what are you going to ah rule? You have to repeal the European law. Sorry, I didn't want us to get into a conversation about the rule. We uh, can't help it. Here. We can't help it. Ends. Um, well, yeah. Well, they passed the Retained EU Law uh, Act uh, a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, as it's been, you know, they made pledge that the government made pledge upon pledge upon pledge at the dispatch box that this will not be used um, for. You know, there will be no environmental regression. They didn't put it on the face of the bill, so mm. it's not there. Though there is there is um, a similar sort of clause in the Leveling Up Bill. So. Um, how you can square um, not damaging the environment uh, with removing the with uh, neutrality advice is it's a difficult one because it, it simply does. Even if, and this is often the criticism made of neutrality, you know, developers aren't, are they really the big polluters in this sense? Not really. It's agriculture. And then, and then the water companies, uh, but nonetheless, they do have an impact. So, I are, are the kind of are regulators meant to turn around and say, actually, it's fine, just keep doing it. And what we have, would be, we would be outraged. Everyone would be outraged. And what have happened. our reg, uh, regulators been saying about this? Well, you know, so Natural England is, is the main sort of regulator um, in in regards to nutrient neutrality and speaking in the, the Eye newspaper in the wake of uh, the reports over like, well last weekend, mainly the weekend. Uh, their chairman, uh, Tony Juniper, rebuffed that kind of criticism, saying there's usually some group that feels as though the environmental improvements that the country is seeking to achieve disproportionately affect them. But I would encourage them all, he said, to see the bigger picture. Bigger picture, says Juniper. That's what he says. And I saw Tony Law, who's their dep. I saw in a Alan Law. Alan Law. Uh, forgive me, Alan, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> he was saying that it's not us, it's the Environment Agency that need to deal with farming. Yeah, well, this is this is the way our regulation works. This country is a bit a bit of a mismatch. So the oh the Environment Agency primarily deal with agricultural regulation. So it's kind of um enforcing farming laws is forced to the EA more so than than natural England. Um, you know, I think they they're meant to work together to an extent, but that really falls there. 
Um, and then the, the interim, well, he was the chief executive at the time, but John Curtin spoke to MPs um, recently and kind of said, when he was questioned on this, said that the, the way they're looking at tackling Nietzsche neutrality is through an integrated process under the government's plan for water. Um, but, you know, couldn't come up, couldn't actually say how long this would take. So um, it's on the kind of natural are at the sharp end of having to tell local authorities not to do this and trying to find ways to find mitigation schemes. Um, but really, yeah, the solution isn't going to sit with one sector. And then now on to one of the most important stories that I think ENDS has covered uh, in years. And it's, it's this heartbreaking tale involving uh, the former steelworks at Teesside, governmental policy failures and uh, the unexplained deaths of two men whose families are yet to receive closure. Pippa, this was your story. Can you take me through it? Yeah. So basically in 2019, John McKay and Tommy Williams were contracted by Essex-based demolition company, John F. Hunt Regeneration Limited, to demolish three ammonia washers at the former SSI Steelworks in Teesside, um, and these washers were being removed to make way for Teesworks, which is the UK's largest freeport and the flagship of the government's levelling up plans. And these washers, they, as I understand it, they're designed to strip the toxic and the volatile ammonia from gas streams, which were derived from making coking coal yeah, originally? exactly. Okay. Um, the former steelworks is found in the South Bank, which is an industrial town in Redcar and Cleveland. Um, and the site itself continues to be classified as one of the most dangerous sites in the country. Um, and this is an upper tier control of major accident and hazard sites or a coma site. So JF Hunt were, was awarded the demolition tender by South Tees Sites Company Limited, which is a government owned company, which at the time was jointly owned by the now defunct Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and the South Tees Development Corporation, the first mayor development corporation outside of Greater London. And this is headed up by the Tory mayor, Ben Houcham. Seen a lot of him about. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, now Lord Houcham, I think. Mm. Um, John was removing an inspection cover on one of the washers using a hammer and an oxyacetylene torch. So using kind of wel welding techniques. Um, and Tommy then pushed a hatch into the washer. And it was at this moment that the washer exploded. Um, and kind of an investigation has been going on ever since to kind of look, a police investigation has been going on ever since to kind of find out, you know, what happened. And from my understanding, the crux of the investigation is the fact that the men were told that these washers were empty, that they contained debris and rainwater. But four years later, the family still don't have any answers. Anne, who was um, John's wife, said to me, we know how John died, but we don't know why. So that was kind of the crux of what, you know, the, the answers that are unknown at the moment. But my investigation revealed that in a coma intervention plan for the steelworks dated April 2017 to April 2019, so before John and Tommy were killed, which I obtained via freedom of information request, the competent authority, which is made up of the Environment Agency and the Health and Safety Executive, who are the bodies responsible for regulating these sites, they concluded that the emergency preparedness off-site was 30, meaning it was broadly compliant. And so after this, in March 2018, the competent authority agreed to exempt Redcar and Cleveland Council from preparing an emergency plan for the site because they'd concluded that the site was unable to create a major accident or hazard. So this is one year before the two men lose yeah. their lives. About 18 months later, the men died. 
having the regulators concluded that, you know, nothing could go wrong at the site. It was all safe. And from um, my conversations with Environment Agency insiders, when a coma site is no longer required to have an external emergency plan, its internal emergency plan must be extremely robust because this is the main protocol that is in place if an emergency or an accident was to happen. However, the inspection documents that I've obtained dated the 11th and 13th of May 2021 show that this wasn't the case. Um, So the regulators identified, um, and this is a quote, significant failings in the necessary demonstrations for emergency response arrangements. They identified many key failings, which I've listed in my article. But an example is that of the 40 employees listed on the site training matrix, eight, including key personnel such as environment and security managers, had not actually received the training. This was consequently deemed to be a breach of health and safety law. Um, Issues relating to the environmental safety of the site were also identified by the regulator. So, for example, a benzol scrubber is described as being located without a drip tray, not in abundant area and close to a site drain. Um, A separate report listing the hazardous inventory that's contained within the site described that benzol may cause cancer and is toxic to aquatic organisms. Mm. And what did what did the families say, like once you showed them everything you'd found out? Yeah, so I actually went down to Teesside to meet um, Anne, who's the um, the wife of the late John McKay, and Maggie, who's um, John's sister. And they were incredibly shocked. You know, they've been waiting for answers. They've been in contact with the police and the HSC, and they just feel like they're getting absolutely nowhere. And as I say, you know, their kind of their line that they kept saying to me is, you know, we know how John died, but we don't know why. Um, and, you know, she kind of said to me that, they're all for regeneration. They see, you know, this Freeport is in, in theory a great thing, but at what cost? You know, she said to me, what value do you place on a man's man's life? Right. I mean, and that is central to this whole story and the develop, redevelopment of Teesside, I think. What have the authorities told you then in response to your investigation? So an HSC spokesperson said that their thoughts remain with the families of the two men that died and pointed that the investigation which is being led by the Cleveland police is ongoing. Um, But they said in a quote that major hazard sites such as these are among the most highly regulated workplaces in Britain. Arrangements at Teesside were reviewed following the incident in 2019. A number of significant failings were identified in the South Tees Site Company's safety report the following year. This led to detailed inspections at the site in May 2021 and an improvement note being issued and subsequently complied with. Um, the Environment Agency declined to comment directly, but, you know, they kind of echoed what the HSC said and said they ca- they've carried out reviews into the relevant coma safety reports and implemented further regulatory inventions. Um, and both South Tees Site Company and the South Tees Development Corporation declined to comment. Um, as they said, the, sub- the um, incident is still subject to a live police and HSC investigation. And instead, they directed me to the former um, Department for Business and Energy and Industrial Strategy, who had shares in the site until 2020. Um, And when I contacted the Department for Business and Trade, because obviously it's now all been split up, um, they declined to comment and said, you know, investigations into the incident are ongoing and it would be inappropriate to comment in advance of any public findings. And if you are interested in hearing more about Pippa's story, um, She's been looking at the HSC and EA and Coma for months and months now. There's some great stories on our website. 
Um, and I'm just going to jump on my soapbox for a second, because if you really do care about great investigative journalism, there's that phrase that you get the environment you pay for. And I'm seeing more and more that you get the information that you pay for. Um, and I just think that, you know, if you want to take out a subscription to the end support, really do consider it uh, with your company or business, because, yeah, you, you'll have access to all these great stories on our website. That's it. I'm jumping off my soapbox now. Jumping over to our deep dive this week as we take the plunge with EMS Reports Commander-in-Chief. I'm Jamie Carpenter, and I'm really pleased to be joined for this week's deep dive by the team behind Watershed Investigations, Rachel Salvage and Liana Hosier. Welcome. Hello. Great to be here. Thank you. So um, Eco Chamber listeners who have been with us from the beginning will remember Rachel, um, she was a host of podcasts until the end of last year. Um, Rachel, how's it feel to be back? It feels very strange. Really, really nice to see familiar faces, but very strange to be back in the building. It's only been six months, though, so uh, it seems to have whipped by. It does, doesn't it? Mm. Would you like to do it? It's time to enter the eco chamber for old time's sake. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to enter the eco chamber. Fantastic. It's like being <laughs> transported back in time. Yes. <laughs> So I thought we maybe could start by talking about Watershed. Um, could you explain what it is and um, why in particular you're focusing on water? Liana, do you want to take that one? Watershed Investigations is a non-profit investigative journalism unit run by Rachel and myself. So we're focusing on water because I think water is really the issue of our time, um, whether it's where how we're feeling climate change through drought or flood uh, or pollution and contaminated drinking water, according to you know the UN estimates, demand for water will outstrip supply over the next decade. There simply won't be enough for all of us. So I think these kind of investigations are really critical globally and also you know here in the UK with with all the water stories and water issues that are happening at the moment, which I'm sure we're going to touch on. Fantastic. Um, it didn't take very long, I think, for Watershed to, to kind of make its mark. So one one of the um, first investigations that you, you had published was around PFAS or um, per and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. Um, we talked about this on a lot on the podcast, but if anyone hasn't heard of them yet, then these are a group of... Um, so-called forever chemicals, they have really useful non-stick properties, but um, unfortunately it turns out they're actually really bad for human health and the environment. They're persistent, bioaccumulative and ubiquitous, and they're, they're linked to loads of nasty health issues. Um, and you recently took part in a this, this kind of big mapping project with other newsrooms from across Europe. Um, could, could you explain a bit, Rachel, about how the project worked and, and what you found out? Yeah, it was a, a fantastic project. So Liana and I had been working on the UK side of things for a number of months, and we had dri driven around the country testing tap water and surface water, and then we gathered sort of official data from FOIs and various other means. So we had this data set. Um, and then uh, we collaborated with a, a number of journalists who were doing the same thing across Europe. So it was led by Le Monde. Uh, and a number of other outlets. I think it ended up being about, was it 12, 17, 17 outlets in total? Yeah, it's yeah. about 18, 18 out of the Forever Pollution Project. Yeah. Who are all doing similar things, um, slightly different sort of scales, but everything was pulled together. And they um, they took on this methodology, methodology that was used by a map for PFAS 
polluted sites in America. So that's already been in existence, the methodology had been proven. And then they looked at sites where PFAS was known to be manufactured, where they knew it was used in large quantities in firefighting foam at sort of um, sort of Ministry of Defence sites or airports or something like that, and to sort of work out where places have been polluted because it's been actually measured and found or where things could be polluted. Um, here, the UK media is a little bit more um, concerned about looking at potentially polluted places, so we couldn't put all that on the map in the UK. But uh, in Europe, in France in particular, where they're a bit more sort of ballsy about all that and the... <laughs> um, the legal system supports journalists a little bit better. Um, they were able to put the potentially contaminated sites on. So in the end, we had this Europe-wide map showing sites of uh, where PFAS has been found and where places where uh, it could be polluted. And I think it was it's not the first of its kind because America had already done it, but it was the first of its kind for Europe. And I think it really showed the scale of what might be out there because I think it's well understood in, in America that there's a huge contamination problem, lots of legal cases underway. Here in the UK, a lot, a lot mm. less so. We have very little idea and we're very, very far behind. Yeah, when we started this investigation last year, there really was a dearth of information. Mm. So it did take us starting out, getting out on the road with um, samples, bottle, you know, uh, for to take water samples across the country, working with, you know, University of Greenwich, uh, University of Manchester, try and see what was out there. And we also found, um, you know, a manufacturing plant where we found some of the highest levels of uh, PFAS, you know, in, in the UK, uh, you know, at, at least in our, you know, some of the highest readings that we took personally were, was at that plant. So, um, yeah, we definitely have an issue, but it's, it's mm. very underreported. Um, yeah. Actually, I was going to just mention a little plug. Our radio documentary is up for a Royal Society Award as well um, as part of that kind of road trip around the UK and also New Jersey. Also, Jersey has a big problem with PFAS contamination in their drinking water supplies, which has been kind of, you know, a lot of those people taken off those boreholes, but for years they were exposed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think it's, um, I think the mapping is really interesting because if you look at the UK, you, you, it, there, there are just sort of blobs or points everywhere. And I think, um, as Rachel, you're saying, the, the there's been loads of loads of coverage and um there's been really really big payouts in the US and i think there's, there's probably a bit more acknowledgement about what's going on in parts of europe but mm. until recently it's not really been known um what's going on in the uk and um and where we didn't find blobs it doesn't mean that there isn't pfas no. there there's just not the information there yet so i think it's still unfolding we're still learning where it is because it's in so many products. It's probably in this chair I'm sitting on, and maybe it's in my you know waterproof jacket. It's you know in the on the carpet as well as you know in firefighting foams and pesticides. So we're still finding out. And it's um, in, I think you mentioned that the, the high concentrations from one site. So that was um, in in the wire estuary up in Lancashire, I think. Um, but I think reading the coverage of that is interesting. That that that's not it's not illegal to discharge that PFAS at the moment. Um, which is, I guess, slightly slightly worrying given the concentrations. Yeah, it just shows how far behind the regulations and the regulators are on on all this, on all this stuff. Because the, the PFAS that we found, well, we've I think there are about seven or eight hundred detected uh, different PFASs in the effluent coming off the site where that chemicals plant is, um, and one of them is the the banned 
one of the banned one, which is PFOA. That's why they're called forever chemicals, because yeah, they last yeah. forever. <laughs> yeah. Or pretty much. Yeah. Well, I, I guess one thing that seems to be taking forever is the, the UK government's action on, on PFAS. They, 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 um, there's criticism that the, the UK isn't, isn't keeping pace with Europe, I think, both in, in terms of restrictions, but also um, in terms of the kind of drinking water levels as well. Um, I mean, on, on, on the restriction side of things, the Europe are going forward with this group restriction on, I think, 10,000 different PFAS. Um, but the criticism is that the UK isn't, isn't keeping pace. Do you think that, that's fair? Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The health and safety executive recently put out a, a review and there were some recommendations to government, but none of it was, was binding. And I think the government said they accepted more or less what they were saying, but that's so far away from anything actually happening or any kind of commitment. Um, and I'm just really keen to see the chemical strategy wherever whenever that might <laughs> yeah. come out. I mean, it's how many years is that? It's a couple of years late or am I exaggerating? Is no, it- I, don't think, I think it was in the um, 25-year environment plan, wasn't it? Which oh. was... Oh, gosh. Six years ago? Yeah, that's no, 2018. 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it. We're essentially allowed, what is it, 100 nanograms per litre of PFAS in our drinking water before kind of action really needs to be taken, before people need to be stopped from, from drinking that water. Um, but, you know, there are studies coming out which shows that we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be drinking any levels of PFAS in our water because, you know, even at low levels of so two, I think it's two or four, maybe there are nanograms per litre, there's or at low levels, it's linked to immunotoxicity, so damaging to your immune system. Um, so more and more, they're finding health effects at lower and lower levels, which is what the problem is. And is, you know, you've got a certain amount in your drinking water, and then maybe you're breathing some in, in dust in your house. It because it bioaccumulates, it will build up, and the load increases. So it's not a great idea. No, no, um, and the the. Uh... Levels that we could have in the drinking water here in the UK would not be allowed in in the US. Is that that's right? Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. State by state, it varies. But the 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 EPA health advisory was at seventy, which is lower anyway. And now there's been an announcement that they are potentially taking it down to something like 0.04 nanograms per liter. So compare that with our hundred. <laughs> it's mm. uh, not great. Yeah, and other countries in Europe, like Denmark, it's, it's also much lower, mm. Norway. So we are trailing behind, that, yeah, that's certain. Absolutely. We interviewed this um, uh, kind of a environmental protection agency whistleblower on our podcast, and she was talking about how, you know, it's in pesticides and it rained down on her town. <laughs> and, um, you know, you've got hundreds of US municipalities going after these companies. And, you know, there's been, you know, there's been huge lawsuits. And I just think, you know, we are also behind on, on that aspect, but perhaps it's coming down the line. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you see, you see them almost every week, don't you? The, and the payouts are absolutely huge. Yeah, yeah. It's essentially contaminated the entire world. Mm. So. You know, it's it's in rain on the Tibetan plateau, it's in the Arctic, it's just everywhere. It's it's crazy. So uh, our, our podcast producers were saying, I'll try and try and kind of make it a bit more lighthearted. And uh... oh, sorry, <laughs> oh, right, <laughs> the wrong people. Jeez, <laughs> oh, yes. I haven't um, got any good news for you. I haven't got any PFAS jokes. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm sure some cheesy words will be covered. We'll have to devise some, won't we? So another another um, uplifting story. Um, <laughs> so this, um, I, I guess one one you kind of mentioned the, the the kind of testing that you did sort of around PFAS, and um, it seems like a theme of your work seems to be around guess, uncovering or shedding light of on on sort of concentrations of nasty stuff in our rivers and seas. Um, and one of the stories that you did recently was around um, E. coli found in oysters in in Cornwall, um, which which has led to the closure of um, eleven shellfish production zones earlier this year. And um, I think that's kind of interesting because a lot of the coverage and um, attention around sewage tends to be around the impact on wildlife, and I, I suppose people that use rivers and seas for, for leisure purposes, but actually in some places it's having an impact on on people's livelihoods too. Um so could could you sort of briefly explain what 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 what's what's happened there in Cornwall? Um well basically we we looked at data uh, for E. coli in oysters around the UK and found that I think about just under um not even a quarter of oysters um, would pass sort of EU standards of cleanliness because of high levels of E. coli. Obviously, E. coli is a signifier of either farm, slurry or sewage, human waste. Um, so it's from dumping of of waste into our into our rivers and then and flowing into the sea. So yeah, this is um, really damaging for a lot of uh, oyster farmers, you know, because they have to spend a lot of money, I suppose, as well on depuration, which is kind of cleaning oysters. You know, you have to put them in water for a certain amount of time, you know, UV light before you can have, um, before you can sell it to be, you know, out, uh, you know, eaten on the open market. But they can't sell a lot of it to Europe because our oysters are just not clean enough. Our rivers are not clean enough to meet those EU standards. So it's, I mean, it's it's something that they were saying as well, because oysters are quite a low kind of carbon intensive protein. It's sort of better for the environment than other animal proteins. It's good for the ecosystem. So they were really saying that this is an industry that should be supported by the government so and supported by by industry and they need clean water and they've been asking the government for years and they say they've been just brushed off um calling out for cleaner rivers mm. and and action hasn't been taken i think it's important to say that they're not sold these so they they get cleaned to various different levels so the they're monitored and if a certain percentage of oysters from a certain site has certain above a certain level of e coli in it then they have this type of cleaning if it's a different one, then they'll have an even more intensive type of cleaning. And if it's higher than that, then it won't be sold at all. So people shouldn't think that they can't eat oysters from because they're all fine. But they shouldn't have the E. coli in the first place. And it's costing those businesses, the shellfish businesses, a fortune to have to what's called, is it depuration or something? Yeah, to, to clean them. Um, they have to go through all these in, intensive cleaning processes, which is just adding cost on for the shellfish industry. Um, and actually, it's all coming from either the water sector or farming in the first place. And they're having to pick up the bill. I mean, Water UK did say that water companies plan to spend £10 billion over the next seven years in an intensive programme to improve sewage overflows um, as part of, you know, modernising the Victorian era sewage system. But of course, you know, will they be able to, I suppose, when, when you look at the financial trouble that the water industry is in? 
Yeah, so we'll talk about that that uh, particular aspect of the water industry in a moment. I mean, on on, um, on sewage. I mean, Rachel, you were you were heavily involved in um, our documentary Seven, which was published last September, and in 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 one way, it seems that there's there's been quite a lot that's happened since then. Since um, had like the environment at like long term targets, we've had. Um, integrated plan for water but but at the same time the kind of level of public anger and clamor around sewage has has kind of got even even stronger i mean do you think things have um we're in a different place now to where we were last year or is it still a lot to be done Mm, no i think (laughs) nothing's changed i don't think obviously there's been a lot of a lot more focus on it there have been a lot of announcements there have been a lot of promises um, money has been pledged. I think this is what's the last water sector amount of money, the 10 billion or something, but doesn't mean it's actually happening. Uh, that has to get signed off by off what at the moment. They're just, it's just words. Um, I'm sure things will change, but I'm not sure how quickly they're going to change. And, you know, if, if, if that involves sort of just bigger storm tanks, then maybe that can be turned around fairly quickly. If that, if that involves, overhaul of of sewage infrastructure that's going to take a really long time so um i don't think it's going to change in the short term um but maybe five ten years but we have to keep the focus on it otherwise if it does drift away nothing will nothing will end up happening and then obviously we don't know what state the water sector is going to be in anyway given um what's going on with thames water i mean do do you think i mean it seems fairly clear that the the issue is going to be an election one. So you've got um, Labour have been making a lot of noise about it. Lib Dems really make a lot of noise about it in their, their local campaigning. So I, I kind of wonder whether we've not heard the end of it in terms of policy announcement and commitments, but as you say, whether whether those things actually do um, materialise into anything that makes a makes a massive difference in the timeframes that are proposed is a, is a different question. It's a pretty tricky situation because a lot of money is going to be needed for infrastructure investment for sewage and also um, to ensure that there's enough um, clean drinking water for all of us in a future of climate change and increasing droughts which was another you know area that we looked at looking at water management systems and the kind of you know that I think the last reservoir was built in 1991. There's one being built currently, but, you know, maybe there's five, but they haven't got planning permission yet. So an awful lot of, you know, investment is going to be needed. Where is it going to be coming from? You know, if we do have droughts this summer, we found huge shortfalls of, you know, millions, um, millions of gallons of of water shortfall in a severe drought this summer. I think it's... um, Southern Water faces the biggest deficit of 188 million liters a day. So, um, what what are the you know what is it that the the, the government mm. is going to do? I mean, there's this YouGov poll calling for renationalizing the water industry, but I you know is that going to solve the problem? It's 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 not certain. Mm. And in the meantime, the environment's going to take the brunt because in the water resource management plans, there's nothing in the short term, nothing coming up in the short term. So. If there's an extreme drought, as Liana said, and where Southern has that huge deficit, 
they're going to turn to the rivers and groundwater and take more. But hang on, it's a drought, so there won't be very much water in those aquifers or rivers. But hang on, they're going to be discharging the same amount of effluent into those rivers, even though there's hardly anything there, and then trying to abstract it for drinking water. It's the whole thing's broken end to end. Uh, I mean, the main focus of these water management plans that we looked at was, you know, reducing demand. So you and me are going to have to use less water. There's going to be water meters. Obviously, our bills are going to go up. So, you know, or, you know, in with more infrastructure needed, again, bills are going to be going up. So I think people, you know, ordinary people who are already hit with kind of rising uh, cost of living bills are going to be having to contend with higher bills for clean water as well. Could I could I plug our podcasters there? Because we've been talking about obviously reducing water demand. And I think in the UK, we're on 140, 145 litres per head per day, um, which is too much. I think in some other European countries, it's as low as 110 and we need to get down there. But we've just on our first podcast, so our podcast is The Watershed Investigations, um, Tales from the Frontline of the Water Crisis. So in each episode, we'll have somebody who's experiencing the sharp end of it, whether it's drought, pollution or, or flood or whatever it might be. And then we'll have an expert. So we have two people each time. And we we spoke to Faiza Meyer, who lives outside Cape Town. In the township, on, yeah. And they're on 350 litres per property. So that means, and within her home, she's got about 10 people because she's taken in other people's kids. And then there's lots of different families in there. And this is 350 a day. And they're threatening to make people pay for water, which, and she's absolutely terrified about what's going to happen to her. That's one of our... And people um, there live in shacks. A lot of people in the townships, they're living in small makeshift homes or shacks. Some mm. people don't even have uh, running water or you've got many households, many, many households sharing one tap. I've been there to the townships and it's really a desperate situation. And obviously it's it's the poorest who are being hit the hardest. So you've got, you know, tens of people having to just share, you know, the 350 litres between them. It's kind of very stark, you know, you don't just see the inequality within South Africa, you can see it from South Africa to here as well. Yeah. I think it's interesting, the the, the role of the individual in it, because I think that's something that you don't really hear much about the water, water usage per person. But then then also, I think the, there was an interesting question at the, um, UK the conference about whether people will be prepared prepared to pay more bills for for cleaner water, which is obviously a um, difficult conversation to be having with the public at the moment, given the cost of living crisis. But I kind of wonder whether it's a conversation worth having, whether people are actually prepared to pay a bit more to to if they know in return they're going to have cleaner rivers and seas. Maybe if they weren't the only ones, you know, maybe if industry. Well, we're willing to pay more or, you know, in Cape Town, a lot of the water is owned by, you know, farms, like the majority of reservoirs are owned by, you know, privately owned. So and they don't have to be on these restrictions and and, and high tariffs. And it's the same in Flint, Michigan, um, in the United States, where I also worked. You know, you have residents paying huge bills for it was contaminated water. And then Nestle is is able to pump, you know, millions of, of gallons of water for practically nothing. So I think it it depends if there is equality, potentially, you know, perhaps people would feel that that was a fairer deal. And it's about ability to pay, isn't it? For some people, they just don't want their bills putting up full stop regardless because they can't 
they can't afford it. They might have two jobs and six kids or something. It's just it depends who you ask, I think. Yeah, and the proportion that you're being asked to pay. Mm. I guess you've got some people who are refusing to pay their, pay their water bills because they're unhappy with what's going into the uh, waterways. So it's probably a bit more of a dangerous option to take that that, that particular route. Yes. <laughs> um, Leonie briefly talked about um, kind of privatisation, renationalisation debates. Um, so this is obviously big problems at Thames Water, um, and people are now starting to talk about that. That I suppose changes to models. So I think I think the um, Lib, Lib Dems are talking. About, I can't remember what the the uh, phrasing was, but they're kind of having a uh, having a kind of a, a public good kind of component to what the the business model is. And I think there was a an interesting email that was leaked from the uh, boss of Seven Trent Water, Liv, Liv Garfield, around trying to almost um, influence Labour as to what to put in their manifesto on what the <laughs> social <laughs> purpose. Social purpose, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has anybody worked out what that actually means? <laughs> Do you know what that means? Um, I I can't pretend to. No, no, no. <laughs> You'd have thought that provision of clean drinking water kind of had a social purpose yeah. inbuilt <laughs> in it. Yeah. But obviously we're at this situation because Thames Water might have to be taken over by the government if it runs out of money. And obviously when they were privatised in 1989, they were debt-free. And now, you know, because they borrowed, the, the owners of, of Thames Water would have borrowed so much money and then paid, you know, large dividends uh, to shareholders and didn't put it in infrastructure. They're currently in £14 billion of debt, um, which is, you know, and, and, and Thames Water's current debt is, I think, 80% of the value of their business. So they're the most indebted in the in England and Wales, but you know they're certainly not the only water company to be in in high debt. I think Offwatch said last March that the sector was in debt by sixty point six billion pounds. So this is going to uh, <laughs> spell trouble ahead, and we're paying the interest, <laughs> right? And that's why it's come to this crunch point because mm-hmm. the interest is. Um, the interest rates are high. They're on the retail price index instead of the lower consumer price index. So it's coming to this crunch point where they don't know if they can, you know, they're having trouble repaying. And so they've had one of their, um, the pension fund uh, say that they're going to back them, the biggest the biggest um, backer of, of Thames Water, Omer, the Canadian company. I don't think they've mentioned, they've said anything yet, have they? I haven't heard anything. Although Thames Water has been fined three million today, hasn't it, for uh, pollution in twenty seventeen? Yeah, Gatwick. Yeah, mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. Not, Killing not a fourteen fourteen hundred fish. Yeah, fish yeah. kill. Yeah, probably it's... more. <laughs> Who counts them? You know, I often wondered how did you know it was fourteen hundred fish? Sure, it was more than that. Yeah, but this is causing yeah, obviously a huge public backlash because who's going to yeah. Is, is the government going to have to bail out Tens Water? And then what about, you know, the other, I think Offwatch said five other firms were, you know, also they were in a similar situation and they were um, worried about the financial resilience of Southern Water, Yorkshire Water, SCS and Portsmouth. Though those companies say that everything is um, tickety-boo. Yeah. Oh, it certainly does, measures, yeah. yeah. It does feel like something might, the, the status quo isn't going to hold forever, does it? I don't, I don't think. Yeah, this kind of system where you've got um, foreign companies and investment banks kind of owning UK water. It's, it's interesting. I don't think it's it's just turning out to be very popular when they've borrowed so much money and 
our infrastructure hasn't seen that no. investment. The argument that frustrates me is that somebody will say something like, well, there's been more investment every year since privatization and more, but more doesn't equate to enough. Just saying more and more and more doesn't mean enough. And it can't be enough if you're having to put it in the in sewage in the rivers and take more water out of the rivers because no, no supply infrastructure has been put yeah. in place. Well, I, I, yeah, I just I think it just feels um, when people make the argument that, that, that water should belong to everyone rather than private companies, especially, especially if they're in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> so one last question for me, and I'll, I'll put it to you both. Um, so imagine you were Secretary of State at DEFRA. Oh, no. <laughs> what, what would be the one change that you would make? Remember, with, with great power comes great responsibility. Let's go first. I think... I'd be fighting tooth and nail for a much bigger budget for the regulators and I would turn them into really hot enforcing machines um, and I'd boost the money for monitoring and I'd have more boots on the ground and I'd give all those environment agency and Natural England and SEPA and Natural Resources Wales and a lot more um, capacity and resource to do the job that they all really desperately want to do. Um, I guess that would be the first thing I would do. Liana? Mm, I know. I don't feel like as a journalist, I'm used to actually coming up with a really good solution. <laughs> <You're> just pointing, <laughs> at, pointing out the uh, just problems. Out the problems. Yeah. Uh, no, I think we do need, um, yeah, sorry to echo what Rachel was saying, but I think, you know, we probably have, you know, laws, if only they were enforced. I think that's a good, you know, that's a good step and you need, uh, yeah, People, you can you can employ people to do that. Mm. <laughs> um, Paying attention to the existing laws would be quite good because <laughs> a lot of them in the Water Industry Act are being uh, ignored, aren't they? So, mm -hmm. and making um, making polluters pay, or you pay for you know you have to pay more for what you uh, you use. Is that a bit of a political statement? Maybe I shouldn't say that. No, yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> think it's controversial. I think I think. Yeah. Um, Quite quite often you see fines for things that don't seem to. There was one fairly recently where criticism that it just didn't didn't seem to match the uh, come anywhere close to what the damage was. Mm. Um, well, think thanks both for great answers there. I think um, hopefully we'll see you both in uh, Marsham Street soon, and we can uh, see those changes coming to force. <laughs> Be behind the desk with a big cigar. Yeah. <laughs> we'll never be running for office. So. <laughs> but thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Great stuff. Okay, well, it's been really interesting and lots to think about. Um, so thank you both. And over to you, James. And that's it. My thanks to Tess Colley, Pippa Neal, Jamie Carpenter, Rachel Salvage, and Liana Hosea for coming into this week's episode of the Eco Chamber. Uh, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the readers of ENDS, whose subscriptions ensure that real investigative journalism about the UK's natural environment actually does take place. And I'd really love to hear from you listeners uh, with your thoughts, views and opinions on our podcast. You can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on Twitter using the hashtag ecochamber. If you're on Twitter, tell us how good Threads is or on any other social media channel that you're using. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care. <laughs>